Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 through chapter 18, verse 9. Verses 14 through 16. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and off into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, a sick patient brought to Christ, the great physician, for cure and healing. A lunatic, that is, a person at certain times of the moon afflicted with the falling sickness. Two, this sickness of his was aggravated by Satan, who bodily possessed him, and cruelly cast him into the fire and into the water, but rather for torture than dispatch. Oh, how does Satan, that malicious tyrant, Rejoice in doing hurt to mankind. Lord, abate his power, since his malice will not be abated. Observe three, the person that brought him forth for cure, his compassionate father, who kneeled down and cried out, Need will make a person both humble and eloquent. Everyone has a tongue to speak for himself. Happy is he that keeps a tongue for others. Four, the physicians that he was brought unto. First, to the disciples. And when they could not cure him, then to Jesus. We never apply ourselves importunately to the God of power till we begin to despair of the creature's help. Verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Burkett notes. These words are a severe rebuke given by Christ to his own disciples. Where observe the persons upbraided, his disciples, and the sin upbraided with, unbelief, O faithless generation. Yet was it not of total want of faith, but a weakness and imperfection of faith that they were upbraided with and reproved for. Hence learn, one, that secret unbelief may lay hid and undiscerned in a person's heart, which neither others nor himself may take any notice of, until some trial doth discover it. The disciples were not sensible of that unbelief which lay hid in them, till this occasion did discover it. Learn, too, that the great obstacle and obstruction of all blessings, both spiritual and temporal, coming to us is our unbelief. O faithless generation! Others conceived that these words were not spoken to the disciples, but to the scribes, which St. Mark chapter 9 says, at this time were disputing with Christ's disciples, and perhaps insulting over them, as having found out a distemper which could not be cured by Christ's name and power. And these he called now, as he had done heretofore, a generation of vipers. Verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Burkett notes, Observe here with what facility and ease our Savior cured this poor man who was bodily possessed by Satan. With one word speaking, he delivered the distressed person from the malice and power of Satan. Thence learn that how long soever and how strong soever Satan's possession has been in a person, Christ can eject and cast him out both easily and speedily. Verses 19 through 21. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. 
For verily I say unto you, If you have the faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto the mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Burkett notes, Observe here how ashamed the disciples were of this open rebuke given them by their master. They privately ask him the cause of their ill success. Why could they not cast out Satan according to the power promised to them to work miracles? Our Savior tells them that their power to work this miracle now failed them for a double reason. One, for their unbelief, by which we are to understand the weakness of their faith, not the total want of faith. Two, because they neglected the special means appointed by God in order to that end, to wit, fasting and prayer, that is, a fever of devotion joined with faith and fasting. Thence learn that fasting and prayer are two special means of Christ's appointment for enabling us victoriously to overcome Satan and to cast him out of ourselves and others. We must set up an edge upon our faith by prayer and upon our prayer by fasting. Question. But what are we to understand by faith as a grain of mustard seed? Answer. 1. Some do thereby understand a faith that groweth and increases as a grain of mustard seed, or a faith as strong and active in the heart as mustard seed is on the palate. And by removing mountains, understand the performing things that are most difficult. As if Christ had said, Did your faith increase as a gram of mustard seed grows, it would enable you to surmount all difficulties whatsoever. 2. Others by faith as a grain of mustard seed understand the least degree of sincere faith on God, it being a proverbial speech among the Jews used for the least things, as if Christ had said, Had you the least measure of that faith which casts out fear and doubting of success in this discharge of your office, you might have performed things most difficult and even this faith in its effects would be most mighty. Dr. Whitby. Verses 22 and 23. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Burkett notes, Observable it is how frequently our Savior forewarned his disciples of his approaching sufferings, all was little enough to arm them against the scandal of the cross and to reconcile them to the thoughts of what he was to suffer for them and they were to suffer with him. Learn that we can never hear too much of the doctrine of the cross, nor can we too often be instructed in our duty to prepare for a suffering condition. As Christ went by his cross to his crown, from a state of abasement to a state of exaltation, so must all his disciples and followers likewise. Verses 24 to 27. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not thou, master, pay tribute? He say, Yea. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, Of strangers. Jesus said unto him, Then are the children free, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, and cast a hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. 
Take that and give it unto them for me and thee. Burkett notes, Observe here one, the question put to St. Peter, Doth thou, master, pay tribute? This tribute money originally was a tax paid yearly by every Jew to the service of the temple, to the value of fifteen pence a head. But when the Jews were brought under the power of the Romans, this tribute money was paid to the emperor and was changed from a homage penny to God to a tribute penny to the conqueror. The collectors of this tribute money asked Peter whether his master would pay it or not. Observe, too, the answer returned positively and suddenly. He does pay. Peter consults not first with our Savior whether he would pay it, but knowing his readiness to render to all their due, he says, yes, there was no truer paymaster of the king's dues than he that was king of kings. He preached it and practiced it. Give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Yet observe three. Our Savior insinuates his own exemption, privilege, and freedom from paying this tribute money, as he was the Son of God, the universal king. Subjects pay tribute, but king's children are free. Though Christ was free from paying tribute by a natural right, yet he would not be free by a voluntary dispensation. Therefore, observe, to prevent all scandal and offense, he works a miracle rather than the tribute money should go unpaid. Whether Christ by his almighty word created the piece of money in the mouth of the fish, which was half a crown for himself and St. Peter, who had a house in Capernaum and was there to pay his toll, or whether Christ caused the fish to take up this piece of money at the bottom of the sea, is not necessary to inquire nor possible to determine. Our duty is one, reverentially to adore that omnipotent power which could command the fish to be both his treasurer to keep his silver and his purveyor to bring it to him. Two, industriously to intimate his example in shunning all occasions of offense, especially towards those whom God has placed in sovereign authority over us. Observe lastly the poverty of our holy Lord and his contempt of worldly wealth and riches. He had not so much as fifteen pence by him to pay his toll. Christ would not honor the world so far as to have any part of it in his own possession. The best man that ever lived in the world had not a penny in his purse, nor a house to hide his head in, which he could call his own. Chapter 18, verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Burkett notes, Notwithstanding our blessed Savior had so often told his disciples that his kingdom was not of this world, yet they still dreamt of a temporal and earthly kingdom, which he, as the Messiah, should show forth the glory of, in which there should be distinct places of honor and offices, one above another. And accordingly, at this time, the ambition of the disciples led them to inquire of our Savior, who should have the chief place of honor and dignity under him, in that his kingdom, who should be the principal officers of the state, concluding it must be some of them though they could not agree who were fittest for those high posts of honor and service. Learn hence that the best and holiest of men are too subject to pride and ambition, to court worldly dignity and greatness, to affect a precedency before and a superiority above others. The disciples themselves were tainted with the itch of ambition, which prompted them to inquire of their master who should be the greatest in his kingdom of the church. Verses 2 and 3. And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted, and become as little children, 
ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Burkett notes, Our Savior, intending to cure this pride and ambition in his disciples, first preaches to them the doctrine of humility, and to enforce his doctrine, he sets before them a little child, the proper emblem of humility, assuring them that unless they be converted or turn from this sin of pride and ambition and become as a little child in lowliness of mind and, and contempt of worldly greatness, they cannot be saved. Learn hence, one, that no sins are more odious and abominable in the sight of God than pride and ambition, especially amongst the ministers of the gospel. Learn, too, that persons already converted do stand in need of further conversion. They that are converted from a state of sin may want to be converted from a particular act of sin. This was the disciples' case here. They were turned from a course of sin, but they wanted a conversion from a particular act of sin, to wit, from ambition. Learn three, that conversion, though sincere, may be very imperfect. Converts still have remains of corruption, some lust often breaking forth, which they must take special care to resist and subdue. Verse 4. Whoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Burkett notes, as if our Lord had said, that apostle or that minister who thinks as meanly of himself as a little child and is humble and lowly in his own esteem, he deserves the highest place of dignity and honor in my church. Note that the truly humble person who is freest from affecting preeminency is most worthy of the highest dignity and eminency in the church of God. And in the account of Christ, the way to be honorable is to be humble before honor is humility. Verses 5 and 6. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Burkett notes, Our Savior, having declared that the humblest person should always be highest in his esteem, he next declares how exceedingly dear and precious such Christians are to him, who resemble little children in humility of heart and innocency of life, assuring the world that whatever kindness and respect is shown to such for his sake, he reckons shown to himself, and all the disrespect and unkindness which is offered to them, he accounts as done to himself." So near is the union, and so dear the relation betwixt Christ and his members, that whatever good or evil is done unto them, he reckons as done unto himself. Verse 7. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Burkett notes, two things are here observable. One, the necessity of scandalous offenses. It must needs be that offenses come. Two, the misery and mischief that comes by them. Woe unto the world because of offenses. Woe unto such as give offenses. This is the woe of one denouncing. And woe to such as stumble at offense given. This is the woe of one lamenting. From the whole, note one, that scandals or offensive actions in the Church of Christ will certainly fall out amongst those that profess religion and the name of Christ. Offenses will come. Their necessity is partly from the malice of Satan, partly from the wickedness and deceitfulness of men's own hearts and natures, God permitting those to have their natural effects. Two, that scandalous and offensive actions from such as profess religion and the name of Christ are baneful and fatal stumbling blocks to wicked and worldly men. Three, 
that the offense which wicked men take at the falls of the professors of religion to the hardening of themselves in their wicked practices is matter of just and great lamentation. Woe unto the world because of offenses. Verses 8 and 9. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes be cast into hellfire. Burkett notes, This command of Christ is not to be understood literally, as if it were our duty to maim our bodily members. But the exhortation is to cut off all occasions that may betray us into sin, and to mortify our darling and beloved lusts, though as dear to us as our right eye. Learn, one, that sin may be avoided. It is our duty to avoid whatever leads us into it, or may be the instrument or occasion of it. Two, that the best way to be kept from the outward act of sin is to mortify our inward affection and love to sin. If our love and affection to sin be mortified, our bodily members may be preserved, for they will no longer be weapons of sin, but instruments of holiness. <laughs>